my girlfriend and I, we just bought a Sprinter van. It's a 144 Sprinter van. It's a high roof. So it's, you know, six foot three inside. And the idea is to kind of convert that into living quarters. So, you know, do a search for hashtag van life and you'll find a ton of stuff out there about it. But we're going to convert it into, you know, we're going to have a full kitchen, probably a small bathroom, a bed, a pop, a pop down bed into a table. We're going to, the idea is to, to move into that and kind of explore the open road. And while we're on the open road, there's no reason why we couldn't Airbnb our own property. Welcome to the On Fire Podcast, episode 18, with your hosts, Matt and Kellen. On Fire is a semi-weekly podcast where we discuss financial independence, life hacking, frugality, minimalism, and living within your means. Reviews. We need your help with reviews. Kellen and I, we like to think of ourselves as DIYers, but we can't DIY our own reviews or they won't let us do it more than once. So we need you guys to jump over on Stitcher, on Google Play, on iTunes, and leave us a written review and a five-star rating. Today's guest is Adam Steeper. Adam works in the computer software field while building a cash flowing real estate portfolio to generate passive income in order to fund future travel in a self-renovated camper van. Adam's been a longtime friend of mine. I'm just so happy that we could share his story with you guys. Let's dive into the interview with Adam. Welcome to the show, Adam Steeper. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, welcome. I'm excited to be here. So we'll dive more into this later, but can you give us a brief summary of what the last year has looked like in your life and how things have been going? Yeah, sure. So I work at a, a software startup or a SaaS-based company. We've been growing there. So we recently moved to a new office. We've added a lot of new team members. So I think we're up to 18 team members now. I think at the beginning of the year, we were at about 12 or so. So we've been busy, busy with that, expanding, getting into other continents and stuff, selling our product across the world. And then... Kind of the moonlighting I've been doing is some real estate investing. We've been doing some renovations on a couple of properties that I own, uh, going through some renovation hells on one of the properties, and uh, recently started to explore van life. So I've just recently bought a Sprinter van that I'm looking to convert and hit the road. I love it. Yeah. And so we'll get into some of the renovation projects and stuff down the road, but just so the audience is aware, Adam's a business partner of mine or a partner of mine in a few real estate properties. We got three together. Yep. So, yeah. For a while now. And yeah. And so before we kind of get into what's going on now, let's just get back to the roots. So can you walk us through what was your first introduction into the idea of financial independence, retired early, or even investing in real estate? So going way back, I was born and raised on a farm. So I've always been around. Uh, my parents are effectively entrepreneurs. So I've always been around small business and I've had a lot of exposure to that over the years. And I think that's where a lot of my foundational knowledge about being frugal came from, you know, how to balance a checkbook and things like that. I saw my parents, you know, operating their business and growing their business over the course of my childhood. And with that, I got involved in a lot of, you know, side projects on the farm from, you know, selling sweet corn on the side of the road to babysitting, did a little bit of my own exploratory entrepreneurship with a paintball field and things like that. But I think I was pretty young. I mean, I'm, I'm half Dutch. So the joke is that, you know, the Dutch people are cheap. So my family uh, knows that I'm famously cheap, at least uh, a lot cheaper. I, I used to be a lot cheaper in my younger years, but I've always just been a saver. And I think later in life, uh, I mean, you've been a close friend for our entire lives. We've known each other since kindergarten. So I think we've always had a really close relationship where we bounced off some of these ideas. I can remember, you know, shortly after college, when Mr. Money Mustache launched, you and I like kind of relishing over every every blog post that he would post. And we would talk about, uh, you know, how easy it is to retire or the idea of passive income, just the power of compound interest. So I think it's really been deeply entrenched since I was a child, really. 
And then, so you bought your house really young, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, 21 when I bought my personal residence. I was originally like looking for a property in London. Uh, kind of had a budget in mind of you know around 175 thousand dollars, and was looking in London, looking at you know really small places. I grew up in a rural community. I I always I was born and raised in the country, like I had said, and I'd never never actually lived in like an urban area, if you can even call London an urban area. But I originally then I started looking outside of a small town where I'd grown up and found a house. It was really great shape. It showed well. It was half the price that I wanted to pay for a property in London and it was twice the square footage. So I pulled the trigger on that when I was 21. Wow. What was your experience like with that? How did things turn out? It went really smooth. I still own the property today. So I lived there for, I think it was about eight years. And after that, uh, the, the business that I had mentioned before, the software startup, we had actually moved offices into London. So I wanted to move closer to the office. So I had moved to London. I'd kept the property, I actually found renters, and I've had renters in there for four years now. Um, just a, a really good young family that's taken great shape of the property. It's wow. been completely hands off. I haven't stepped foot inside the property for four years. Wow. Yeah. And so you haven't stepped foot inside of no. it? No. I, I mean, I've showed up on the, the property a few times just to collect the rent checks and that's it. Wow. Uh, he's kind of the handyman special. He's replaced windows. He's done some, he's renovated one of the bathrooms just in subsidized the rent and it's been great. Wow. Yeah. And so something I just want to kind of highlight for the audience, because I think we've been doing, or we've been coming across this quite often on the On Fire podcast is you were a landlord and when you moved to London, you were also a tenant. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that a lot of people don't think of at first, but you kind of want to walk us through why you were a tenant in London versus buying another property. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the transition for our business to move to London happened fairly quickly. Again, we started out in the middle of nowhere. We had a hard time. We, I know we were a software company. We had a hard time attracting talent in a rural area, you know, 60 minutes north of the city. And so it became pretty evident that we were going to have to move to a bigger, a bigger area. You know, everyone in our, everyone in our company lives close to London. So that was the natural choice. You know, there was some debate about should it be Toronto? Should it be the greater GTA or something like that? It ultimately became London and the transition and move to London happened pretty rapidly. And I had worked in London prior to having that job before. So I had done the commute from my house, my house in Park Hill. So it was about a 45 to 50 minute commute. I had done it for a few months before. Uh, years and years before, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to do it for very long before I kind of lost my sanity. So the, the decision was really just to rent it out. Uh, if I could get it to cash flow, I was going to keep the place and find something temporary in London. The idea was I knew I was going to buy a property in London, but I really didn't want to rush and jump into anything. I wanted to find something downtown, uh, something that was a multifamily that I could house hack in. And I didn't want to be rushed into making that decision. I'd also never lived in an urban area, like I had said before. So I wasn't really sure. It was kind of an experimental year or two for me to kind of get close to London. I wanted to be close to work, so I didn't have to use my car. And I ended up finding a great place that, you know, I could rent for $900 and I was renting my house for $1,150. So, you know, I was really just kind of transferred, moving money from one spot to another. So I effectively got to live in London for the same price that I was living in the rural area for. So, oh, that's great. Yeah. So along the way, you mentioned that you had some entrepreneurial, you had some businesses that you tried out and that kind of thing. Do you want to dive into any of those, some of the successes and failures yeah. and lessons learned? Yeah, sure. I, I think again, so when I was really young, you know, we started out, my parents, they operated a dairy farm. So we were expected to go to the barn every single day, do chores, things like that. So we were really involved on the farm and we didn't really get much of an allowance, but Something they offered as kind of a subsidy of the allowance was we, each of my siblings would get like a bull calf every year and we would, you know, do all the chores for all the animals, but we'd take care of those animals, especially, and we'd raise them up for a year or a year and a half and we would sell them. 
And my parents would kind of share the profits for each of those calves. So that was kind of in effect our our allowance for the year. We would get a couple hundred dollars a year for doing that. And so that was kind of like a real exposure into, you know, just the simple of how to balance a, a checkbook because I'd have to pay my dad for all the feed that we had had for the animals and things like that. There was also exposure in, you know, selling sweet corn on the side of the road. So that was, you know, waking up at seven o'clock in the morning, going to handpick uh, fresh sweet corn every morning and selling it on the side of the road. And that was, you know, completely operated by me and my siblings. So I'm sure my parents were, you know, kind of keeping an eye on us. But and then it kind of progressed from there. I got into a bit of babysitting. Again, we lived in a rural community, so we weren't allowed to work off the farm because my parents didn't want to be committed to driving us everywhere. So you know, aside from uh, the odd babysitting trip here and there. And then after that, I got into, into high school, I kind of discovered or got into paintball and with a, a group of guys, Matt included, mm-hmm. and we had kind of became a passion of ours, like a really uh, engorged hobby. And the only spot to play paintball or get paintball equipment was to drive to the city. And again, because we're in the rural area, our parents don't want to drive us an hour to go get something. So we kind of decided to start our own business to bring, bring paintball to the rural community where we were. And the whole idea and goal was really just to subsidize our habit. So the idea was we could play paintball for free and have, you know, the nicest gear and not have to drive an hour and we could be like the hub or the central point and people would come to us. So we ran that for, I think it was five or six years. Ultimately, we had some massive tournaments with, you know, 30 or 40 people. We were in the local newspapers. We had district, we were distributors for different paintball companies across Canada and things like that. We sold, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of goods. And this was back in the high school days. After that, I got into, uh, I went to school for graphic design and sort of slowly started transitioning into web and marketing and things like that. And so I was always kind of moonlighting and doing websites for people or business cards and logos and things on the side for that too. So that's kind of been that's pro- progress every step of the way. It's been really entrepreneur and very eclectic set of businesses. And absolutely. I mean, one, one little side business, if you could start, call it that, is when I went back to school uh, to kind of study a little bit more in computer science. Uh, one of my school projects, I developed a sheep tracking software. So it was like a CRM for tracking for flock management. And that was a school project that I still operate today. And I still sell, you know, a couple dozen licenses a year uh, cool. still today. Right. So there's all these like little trickles of income, you know, with that and also getting into like, you know, drip investing, getting a small drip portfolio set up. And yeah, just a few other things, you know, I was doing website hosting for customers and stuff. And that was just, I really liked the idea of the residual income where every year I could, I could send my clients an invoice and they would pay me and I'd literally have to do nothing other than pay the check for the hosting. Right. And so kind of building off the entrepreneur stuff, I know this, but so just to kind of let the audience get up to speed, the company you're working for now Doctor manager, you're a principal there. So you also have a bit of an ownership yeah. stake. So do you want to kind of walk us through how that maybe impacts your financial independence journey a bit more than say someone that just has a nine to five? Right. Yeah. So I think this is something that was really important to me. And I think in the fire community, especially is like taking ownership over your, over your job and your, like your core income. And, you know, I, I'm not a person that could be an employee for someone else forever and just, you know, hit the punch clock in day in, day out for 50 years. That's not really, I, I would honestly go insane for that. So being in a position where I have some control and say over what the company does and the decisions on uh, the choices we make for, you know, marketing or hiring new people or, you know, different, different company initiatives is really important to me. I was the first employee there. So it was me and the, the founder were the original people that kind of got it off the ground. 
Uh, it's been about nine years. Again, we, we started, it was just me and him kind of grinding it away on the side. Kind of the core business was mainly print, actually producing print, print material at the time and doing some marketing and websites and things like that. And slowly and slowly, we found a need for this product that we eventually built up. And like I said, we've got 18 employees now and we're in four different continents. And just being involved with the growth of the business is really exciting for me. I've always been drawn to just creating things. So it doesn't really matter what medium it is, if it's something virtual or digital or uh, physical, you know, from building a business to building a website to, you know, build, rebuilding a classic car or something like that. I've always had an interest in having direct control over what I'm creating. So how do you see that kind of now that you have direct control or an ownership stake in the company you're working for? How does that impact maybe your approach towards financial independence? A lot of nine to fivers are able to just immediately pull the ripcord if and when they hit their fire number. I'm imagining that there's a little bit more planning that needs to go into sure. place with a situation like your own. And same with a lot of entrepreneurs who use their business as a means to build up their financial independence war chest. That's very true. It's about finding, I hate the term work-life balance, but it is kind of finding some sort of balance about the passion that drives you to grow the business. And you're right, there is going to have to be some finesse. And I, I think I'm going to come to an inflection point at some point in the distant future about you know how involved I stay with that company. If it's, you know, am I still doing 40 hours a week or 50 or 60 hours a week? Or is there going to be an opportunity for me to kind of pull back a little bit and be more in a management position where I can manage a, a team and kind of distribute the task versus being the person that's kind of like, you know, moving the chains myself. It's definitely going to be a balancing act. And it's definitely been something that I've had to had to work on now uh, as well. So switching gears a little bit, you also mentioned that you're involved in real estate investing. What has been your kind of strategy and uh, your experience with real estate investing so far? Yeah, I think the main strategy has really been buy and hold. So I bought my first property when I was 21. It was my personal residence that I've now been renting out for four years. The next property was a property Matt and I owned together, the uh, famous Fleming Street property that we closed on just a few weeks before the riot. And we've had that since 2012. And then slowly, it's been a bit of progression after that. So it's been you know saving a little bit of money, diversifying into you know my personal business, into stocks and still saving up for more real estate. So it's really just been buy and hold. More recently, I've been trying to uh, explore the, the idea of burring and things like that and just kind of increasing the velocity of my money. But prior to that, it's been a lot of just boots on the ground, doing all the work yourself, learning how to do the tasks, not hiring a lot out, just trying to really stretch every dollar. And so recently, Adam has been the one that's really taking the reins on this project, but we're in the process right now of converting one of our units into an Airbnb do you mind kind of talking through the logic we use to come up with that? Yeah. So this is uh, the fourplex that we we bought, uh, what would be three years ago now that we've had it? Yeah. And so I, that's actually where I live. Uh, my girlfriend and I live there. So we're house hacking there. It's a fourplex. We're in one of the units. And Matt was living upstairs. His, uh, YouTube, his YouTube studio was there. So if you're used to that. <laughs> If the you've whiteboard. Seen, yeah, the whiteboarding. And if you've seen Matt's channel, you've definitely seen that unit. But I mean, that property was really interesting for me and for us when we bought it was we wanted something that was downtown and, and in the core of the city because there's always going to be young professionals that want to live there. And so it's one is we, we have a really good location, but two is like the property is in general is quite nice and didn't really need much modifications to get a prep for Airbnb. So, you know, we were really in a spot where you know you had moved on to uh, another place to live, and we had this this uh, unit empty that was in really good shape. 
And we saw some success in the, in the, in the area that people had had success with Airbnb. And so we thought, why not give it a try? You know, worst case scenario, we can always go back to traditionally renting it at any given time. So, you know, some, some cleaning and some painting later and it's ready to go. We've got our first guest staying there next Friday, actually. And so I haven't actually been watching really the budget on it, but you were able to outfit it pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah. So this is again, I, some skills I've learned from my parents again, growing up on a farm, you know, when you're a farmer, you're on your job 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So time is maybe your greatest strength is that like you have the time to invest in doing all your own work. And so this is something I've learned from my parents about just doing all the work yourself. So I actually had them come out and they helped me with the kind of the final push on the Airbnb. We ended up, they just have amazing work ethic. We ended up doing like a 16 hour day and just like crushing it all out. But yeah, my, my mom's really always had a good eye for design. She actually decorates a bunch of weddings and stuff. So she has a bunch of materials and decor and things like that. Again, they have an old farmhouse. So there's always just like an eclectic collection of decor things around there. So we were actually able to do the majority of the outfitting kind of reusing some of the stuff we had laying around the farm. My parents had, we reused some of my, uh, some of my belongings, some of your belongings, Matt, and we were more or less able to do either through, you know, donate our own, our own materials. We were able to outfit the Airbnb for like $1,500 or something like that. Oh, it was great. Incredibly cheap. I can imagine with old farm, old farm stuff like that. It looks kind of hipstery. Yeah, like exactly. Nice yeah. for, you know, good people downtown and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And something I just wanted to highlight there is like $1,500 based on what we've seen other landlords do in this area in London, Ontario. It seems quite possible that you could pay that back within a month, two months tops. Yeah. The first few stays, we should be able to recoup that. And, you know, worst case scenario, we've got a couple extra beds so we can, you know, I've got a spare room. I'm sure we can find a way to sell these beds if worst game to push comes to shove. But yeah, it's a really small investment. You don't really need to go out and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on furniture and things like that, especially when we're outfitting a two bedroom. It's, it's not really that hard to come up with uh, two bedrooms worth of things. So when you guys are going through the process of deciding, okay, I want to get, I want to make this unit Airbnb versus I want to rent this out mm-hmm. monthly. I mean, you have other properties. So what, what makes you want to decide that this, this property is going to be an Airbnb and you, have you considered other locations and what yeah. are the pros and cons to each? For sure. So one of the other properties we have that's going through renovation hell We've been working on it for about a year and a half now. Yeah. When we originally bought that property, we thought it would be a great candidate for Airbnb. And so that was kind of, I think, where we were going to test our test the waters then. But since that property is still under renovation, we haven't been able to do that. And I think the other benefit is that just the proximity. So I live below, so it's easy to kind of keep tabs on. You know, it's really going to be easy to kind of learn the ebbs and flows of Airbnb, especially when I'm going to be hands-on and on the property. So it should be easy to learn, I think. Yeah, sounds like a fantastic trial. Yeah, absolutely. And so if the trial goes well, potentially down the road, you're going to start Airbnb in your own unit as well. Yeah. And so what are you going to move into if you're Airbnb in your unit? Yeah. So my girlfriend and I, we just bought a Sprinter van. It's a 144 Sprinter van. It's a high roof. So it's, you know, six foot three inside. And the idea is to kind of convert that into living quarters. So you know, do a search for hashtag van life and you'll find a ton of stuff out there about it. But we're going to convert it into, you know, we're going to have a full kitchen, probably a small bathroom, a bed, a pop, a pop down bed into a table. We're going to, the idea is to, to move into that and kind of explore the open road. And while we're on the open road, there's no reason why we couldn't Airbnb our own property. So, so how has that project been so far? I mean, you're just getting started with it. So, uh, yeah, how's it been? Yeah, so we've, we've done a lot of research. It's probably been the last six or nine months. We've been uh, watching a ton of stuff on YouTube, reading blogs and forum posts and things like that. So trying to get that base foundational knowledge done first to kind of make sure, you know, is this something we really want to do? What are the pros and cons? 
what kind of work's involved. I do have a lot of the skill sets to do this because I've done renovations over the years. So to convert a small space like that doesn't seem like too ambitious of a project for me. I was just going to ask, how did you guys come to the idea of a van versus an RV or a tiny house or a lot of the other things that we kind of see in the tiny movement in general? I mean, I've always been really drawn to tiny living. I think long-term, I'll probably own a tiny house or two, hopefully. This seemed like a natural progression step there where it's a lot less of a capital outlay to, to get it going. And so we decided on a sprinter van because of the stealth aspect. So you can read a lot about this online, but it's easy to, you know, park a, basically a cargo van in, you know, any urban area downtown. It's not going to stick out like a, you know, a 20 foot RV would. So the idea with converting a sprinter van versus having a traditional RV is that like you can park in these urban areas, you can stealth camp and you're not going to stick out like a sore thumb. So you can almost get a slightly different experience than you could if you were you know, in a, in a 15 or a 20 foot RV. Yeah. And so do you mind talking about maybe some of the trade-offs that occur between that 20 foot RV sure, yeah. and the camper yeah. van? Probably the biggest one is just the overall space. So space and privacy. We purchased the 144 instead of there are larger sprinters that you can get. So we're not going to have like a dedicated bathroom per se. So that's going to be some, some opportunity for growth, I guess, in our relationship <laughs> in terms of how personal we're, we're going to get. And so the idea is, you know, we'll have a composting toilet inside the van and it's really only going to be there for in case of emergencies. But that's probably the biggest trade-off is just the the lack of space we're going to be living in. What is it? Something like 68 square feet or something like that. I love it. So have you always had minimalist tendencies? Because if not, you're definitely going to need to pick them up. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I have. I've always been super cheap or frugal as I'd mentioned before. So the idea of owning a lot of things has never really interested me. I've always had this like sparsity mindset. So that's something I've always kind of been drawn to regardless. And then especially in the last few years, I've tried to kind of gravitate a little bit more towards that as well. Yeah. So what piques your interest, particularly about the van lifestyle? What is it about it that makes you want to live your life that way? Yeah. So I've always, something I've always wanted to do. And, and again, this comes into frugality and delaying gratification I've just been working, you know, effectively nonstop my entire life, but I've always had a passion or been wanting to do, you know, a bunch of coast to coast tours across North America. I think there's so much amazing landscape and, you know, different opportunities and people to meet just in our our own backyard in terms of like, you know, in North America. I think a lot of people talk about traveling abroad and going to Europe or, you know, Asia or South America or something like that. And I think there's so much open road to explore just in North America. And it seems so accessible And, you know, I've never been out West. I've never been, you know, further West than, you know, Sarnia effectively, you know? And so I think there's just so much open road in North America that I'd like to explore. And I've seen, you know, documentaries and photographs and Instagrams about all these amazing landscapes and things like that to see. And it seems so accessible when it's really in our backyard. So why not, uh, why not go out and explore? Do you mind maybe breaking down for our audience? What sort of budget are you looking Mm -hmm. at with this project? Yeah. So, so again, we did the research and we decided sprinter vans were for us. It's definitely not the cheapest option. They're probably one of the more expensive options. So it's a, first off, it's a diesel vehicle. So they're a lot more expensive than traditional like gasoline vehicles. So the retail value, the resale value stays high with sprinter vans for quite a while. So we did, we searched for about eight weeks trying to find the best deal we could find. We ended up spending $15,000 $15,000 on the van. So it's an 09 Dodge Sprinter. It's a 144. It's a high roof and it's got 260,000 kilometers, which which sounds like a lot, but these things are built to go a million miles. So, but yeah, so we've, we spent $15,000 on the van. That was all in. That was licensed, taxes, uh, ready to hit the safety to knee tested, ready to hit the open road. 
And the budget for the internal conversion, we're, we're planning on spending about $5,000. So about a $20,000 budget. I mean, that's you can definitely do it for a lot cheaper. If you're doing it in a sprinter van, it's harder to do it cheaper than that. You know, I've seen people online that have spent 25, 30,000 and there's people out there that, you know, hire it all out, get professional companies to make it that'll spend north of six figures to uh, get their vans outfitted. Wow. And so that $5,000, what will that kind of be going yeah. towards? Does that include any solar or any power? Yeah. So yeah, the, probably the biggest outlay of that $5,000 is the solar setup. So uh, we're probably going to have two to 300 watts of solar panels on the roof of the van. And we'll probably have two to 300 amp hours worth of battery storage. So again, those things are, seem to be the most expensive. So we'll probably end up spending around 1200 maybe up to $1,600 of that $5,000 budget just on the solar power. And that'll effectively allow us to live off grid. It should be enough power that we should be able to hit the open road indefinitely without having to stop to plug in somewhere and recharge the other big budget item is probably the, the fridge. So we're going to get a 12 volt fridge and those seem to range from like 800 to a thousand dollars. So, you know, right there, you're talking about 50% of the budget is just on those two items. And so that power setup will power the fridge. Yep. Yeah. It'll power the fridge, the fridge 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'll also have, you know, some, an exhaust fan lights and we'll also have the ability, you know, keep our phones charged, you know, have a laptop or an iPad and things like that. So some, some modest electrical needs, but you know, I don't, I, if you're living in that small space, you're supposed to be outdoors, not sitting on your computer all day. Yeah. So what is that like for a lot of these decisions, the idea of buying rental properties, living in a, living in a camper van, maybe get a tiny home, that kind of thing. What is the, what is the reaction of your friends and family in your life been when you make these decisions that are, you know, fairly uncommon? I think my friends know me well enough to know that I, I kind of go against the grain and that I'm not, uh, you know, following the status quo of, you know, 2.5 children in the picket fence. So I think if you know me and you know me well enough, that it's not really a shock or surprise that I've always been kind of drawn to the obscure or the unique that way. Do you find that they're supportive of it, of your decisions, or uh, they're just like, that's weird and they don't really talk about it? <laughs> no, in general, I mean, my, I've been really lucky. My parents are really have really been supportive with every decision I've ever really made. So they're there, like I said, they're there to show up to help me with the Airbnb and put in a 16 hour day. They've been there to, you know, help me get my business off the ground, or they've been there to help me, you know, fix my car when I was too cheap to take it to the mechanic. Wow. That's awesome. So when you undertake these coast to coast trips in the future, is that going to be a mini retirement? Does that look like full fire, full retirement? Kind of walk us through how you envision that working out. I think a lot of that's still to be seen. The, the idea is that we're hopefully planning on building it out over the next month or two. And the plan was to go on a two week road trip this fall. So I think that'll be kind of a big eye opener in terms of how I really like it on the open road. That might be a catalyst for, you know, driving my next set of goals in terms of like how aggressively I want to pursue living on living on the road full time or, you know, for a multi-month period is kind of what I'd like to do. So do you know what sort of cost do you think you'd incur like with that multi-month trip? Like yeah. your major expense, I'm guessing is fuel. Yeah. I think it'd be fuel and food would be the only major, major uh, cost there. That, that's the nice thing about, uh, you know, van life is that the accommodations are usually the most expensive thing when you travel. And so you have that in your backyard. The nice thing is too, it's like your home, right? So you always have the comfort of going home. So you see these people that go out and, you know, do these crazy hikes and, you know, traditionally you'd go out and you'd come back and you have to sleep in your tent. A lot of people that are into van life really enjoy it because they get to come back to their home at that point and they have all their belongings and, you know, they have a full kitchen that they can actually cook food in and stuff too. So it's kind of like a home away from home. But yeah, food and gasoline or diesel will be definitely the highest expense. 
You're like, I'm going to assume you're going to have multiple streams of income or some kind of income, passive income coming in while you're on these trips and while you're on these adventures. So what do those streams of income look like? Mm -hmm. So the majority of it's going to be real estate for sure. So hopefully Airbnb is a, it starts to become a larger and larger chunk of that. But real estate, the passive income from the properties there, I have a small drip portfolio. So collecting some cash from that. And, you know, hopefully the business that I've been working for with for the last 10 years, hopefully we can start paying some dividends out. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so just for our audience members that aren't maybe familiar, DRIP stands for Dividend Reinvestment Plan. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what you're talking about there is you've invested in kind of either small cap or blue blue chip stocks that are paying you out a monthly dividend? Yep, for sure. So I originally got into stock investing in my late teens. I had actually picked a few stocks and had a few wins, which was, uh, I guess, lucky in retrospect, because I probably had no idea what I was doing. But after that, I transitioned all those funds into the tax-free savings account once it came along. And so I've got my tax-free savings account maxed out and, uh, you know, collecting monthly or quarterly dividends. Awesome. Do you have a goal or milestone for your financial independence number? Or do you prefer the idea of working off and on rather than like the pure delayed gratification until you're financially independent? Yeah. So right now I've been chasing the the delayed gratification. And Matt, we've recently talked about this is I would like to get to a position where it's a more sprints. So I could take a few months off or a few weeks off and work really, really hard for a few months. So, and, and that really could be anything. Like I said, I like to create things. So again, that could be virtual, it could be physical, and it could be across almost any medium as well. So circling back to the van life just a little bit more, when you actually undertake, say, your first three-month or six-month voyage, how do you envision? Are you going to let go of all your possessions in London, Ontario? Are you going to figure out a way just to put them in storage? What does that look like? It's probably half and half. I think, so we've done, you know, last year we did the minimalist challenge. We got rid of a bunch of our stuff that was clogging up our closets. This has kind of been a transition in, in preparation. So Jacqueline, my girlfriend, and I have kind of been working towards that in terms of we need to downsize. If we've you know talked about eventually living in a tiny house, and so that kind of goes hand in hand with minimalism. So the plan is to yeah probably start getting a little bit more strict with the things we're going to throw away. Probably some of it will end up in storage, at, you know, a garage on one of my properties or something like that. And you know we'll have the van to to put half of our stuff into, so we can take our kitchen now and put half of it in the van and keep half of it where we are and use that for the Airbnb goods. Okay, so let's dive into a little bit more about financial independence. So do you have a fire number or a recurring monthly income that's kind of your goal that at that point in time, you know, yes, for sure, I'm going to walk away from everything. Mm -hmm. I think for the longest time I have, and it was a pretty modest number of a, a lean fire number of, you know, two to $3,000 a month passively. Again, I've got a, a few properties under renovations right now. Once those renovations are done, I'll be able to hit that goal. So those, those are the kind of things, especially in the, the fire community, I think those goals are ever-changing. I mean, you guys have had some guests on here that have you know numbers that are astronomically bigger than that. I think it'll grow a little bit more for lifestyle inflation and things like that. But right now, it's you know probably since I've been a teenager, it was always around the two to $3,000 mark. I think if I can get that with house hacking, so living for free, having two to $3,000 a month passively, that's really just going to allow me to have the freedom to you know, either further invest that into my business or you know, start off other streams of income. Is there some resources you'd recommend for people that want to either get into van life or real estate investing? Like, yeah. What should they be checking out? Yeah. So I think you know, looking at your local network is probably the biggest thing, in terms of, especially for uh, real estate investing. For van life, for that matter too, I know there's been multiple meetups in the Toronto area and things like that. 
So looking in your local community, what's in your backyard, what's on, you know, meetup.com. There's tons of resources out there. Other than that, I've always been a big lurker on the internet. So I've just used, you can find tons of resources on literally any thing, task, lifestyle you want to look up. So I'm just a big proponent of just doing the research, deep Googling to the forums and the the conversations that are, uh, you know, where the nitty gritty really lies. Is there a particular forum for band life or like YouTuber you'd recommend people check out? Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's so many good YouTubers out there right now that are doing van life full time that are doing daily vlogs. Iman and Beck, they're a couple from Toronto that have been doing it for about a year and a half. They've had great success and they've got really good channels and really good content. Max and Lee, uh, another couple from the Barry area and actually he's from Australia. They've got a great channel with great content. There's honestly so many. It's really like your your flavor and your walk of life. In terms of forums, probably, you know, Band Dwellers on Reddit is a great is a great resource. And Sprinter Force is another great forum for, you know, specifically a sprinter van life conversions and things like that. And so like on these forums and stuff, will people like I'm assuming people are literally documenting like Here's my raw van. Here's the finished product. Here's every step along yeah. the way. Yeah, for me, those are kind of the more, more exciting things to, to watch. You know, it, it's cool to watch you at a, a van life meetup and people, you know, sitting around a campfire playing a banjo. That's cool. But I, I really like to see the process of people, you know, taking a raw, something raw and creating it into their own space. And, and there's so many variants out there from like the really eclectic, you know, country type rough finished van compared to something that looks like a modern, a modern apartment and really everything in between. So do you have any tips or any plans that you plan to implement in order to save money while you're doing this trip and like stay on a budget of some sort? I really don't. I think this is going to be, when we go on this trip, it's going to be kind of a a big eye opener in terms of what, you know, the next chapter of my life could be. And so I I think I'm going to allow myself to have a bit more free reign and a bit more indulge a little bit more. So if that's, and really the biggest expenses would be if we went to urban areas, right? And that's like eating out and things like that or paying for experiences versus, I mean, a lot of it on the open road, you can just stop and go for a hike somewhere, right? So it's it's kind of finding a balance between that. I am going to allow myself to have some freedoms there where I've been pretty frugal in the past. So, yeah. Yeah. So we didn't actually touch upon it, but let's break it down for our audience. What's your kitchen situation going to be looking like? Like, what can you actually cook in your van? Sure. So we've decided to just stick with a camper stove, like a, a camping stove. Some people will put in, you know, two burner or induction burners right into their right into their van. I think that since counter space is such a, a premium, I like to have the idea of having a stove we can move around. We'll probably have a pop-up table that we could do most of our cooking outside anyway. So we've decided to go with like a two burner camper stove. So that's, you know, anything you can find at like Mech or any, any sort of like outdoor store. And after that, we're going to have a a 12 volt fridge. Like I mentioned, it's going to be, you know, a smaller fridge, like a 65 liter, like three cubic, three cubic feet. So kind of like a a mini bar fridge kind of thing. And we're going to have, you know, a sink with fresh water in it. And and that's really it. So there's going to be about, you know, four feet of counter space, uh, sink built in. There'll be some outlets if we wanted to have a blender or something like that with us on the road. And then the opportunity to like really put our, our camping stove anywhere on the counter or more likely outside. cooking outside. Yeah. All right. So at this point, we're going to jump into the fire four. So we asked these same four questions to all of our guests. Uh, the first one is inspired by a previous guest, Paul Plumstead. What are you grateful for? I think I'm just grateful for the local network and to be here today. It's really exciting to be on this podcast. I've, I've loved listening to every episode up until now. So hopefully I don't disappoint. <laughs> awesome. I appreciate that. So going in a completely different direction, question number two, 
What's a guilty pleasure or a tool you can't live without? Guilty pleasure? Lately, it's probably been eating out for lunch. You know, the Adam from 10 years ago would have cringed with how often I'm eating out from lunch. That used to be like a cardinal sin for me and my frugality. So that's, that's probably it. I probably eat out at lunch, honestly, way too much, but a couple times a week, likely. Tool I can't live without would be the internet. Like the resources on the internet, like I said, are YouTube alone. You can literally learn how to do anything. I find like the eating out thing, if it's with friends and stuff like that, it's a social experience. One could argue that it's more of an experience. Mm-hmm. There are ways to do it more frugally, but I think the real challenge is when you're eating out just kind of by yourself, right? I'm going to swing by and pay like yeah. 10 bucks for fast food. It's like those, those are the times where maybe it's like not necessarily worth it. So the third question, is there a frugality tip or life hack of any sort that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, I guess there's, there's so many, honestly. A couple quick ones would be just track your spending. That's probably one of the biggest ones. I think it's not something you need to do and pinch every penny and track every, every, every expense forever. I think it's one of those skills that you need to learn. And then once you learn it, it kind of becomes, you know, second nature to you. Awesome. So question number four, what would the hero of your own movie do right now in your life? I think probably just take more risks. I think uh, the older I get, uh, the more exposure I've had just to, you know, again, being part of the local network and stuff here, I, I think I've started to realize I've maybe played it a little bit too safe over the years and just being a little bit more open to taking risks and, and challenging myself a little bit, putting, getting yourself outside the comfort zone a little bit more. I yeah, love that. That's I, a great answer. I haven't heard that from anyone. I think that that's huge. I think far too often, a lot of us come to life with a scarcity mindset and just like, we don't realize the abundance that's all around us. And that for most of the people I know, taking risks always results in more personal growth than not. For sure. Yeah. You either learn a lesson or you succeed. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Adam. We really appreciate it. And we'd like to ask all our guests one last question. And essentially that is to ask a question of our audience. So is there something you'd like to ask our audience? For example, Michael Rosehart asked, how much is enough? Cool Kent asked, what's draining your energy or what's a poor return on your investment of time? Something Mm -hmm. like that. I guess my question for the audience would be, What's something that you have control over that you could change today to become the best person you could be? That's awesome. I like it. So where can people find you or get in touch with you? Probably on the social. So on Instagram, you can find me. It's a steeper. It's a S T E E P E R or on YouTube. So we we will be documenting our van build. So there will be some content coming up there, hopefully shortly. And you can find me. My YouTube channel is randomly interesting. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again so much. Awesome. Thanks guys. That was a great episode, and I love being able to showcase the people in my life that are crushing it. Adam's comments on topics like minimalism, tiny houses, camper vans, and even the computer software field were down to earth, which made typically uncommon ideas feel relatively normal. And while you're waiting for the next episode, jump over to Facebook and join the London on Fire community, and make sure you follow us on Instagram, at On Fire Podcast. And make sure to tune in to the next On Fire podcast to meet more people, hear their stories, and learn from their mistakes. Thanks for listening. This is Matt and Kellen signing off. And until next episode, remember, being normal, buying stuff doesn't make you happy. And always remember what Farrah Gray said. Build your own dreams or someone else will hire you to build theirs.